0: Section three of The Tomb of Tutankhamun by Howard Carter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Availly in May two thousand nineteen. Introduction Part Three. The net result of the accident was the necessity to winter out of England, since with his difficulty of breathing. A bad attack of bronchitis would probably have proved fatal in 1903 he consequently went to egypt and was at once captivated by the fascination of digging an unfinished fragment on the subject on which he was engaged at his death gives an account of these early days it had always been my wish and intention even as far back as 1889 to start excavating but for one reason or another i had never been able to begin however in nineteen o six with the aid of sir william garston who was then adviser of the public works i started to excavate in thebes i may say that at this period i knew nothing whatever about excavating so i suppose with the idea of keeping me out of mischief as well as keeping me employed I was allotted a site at the top of Sheikh Abdel Gurna. I had scarcely been operating for twenty-four hours, when we suddenly struck what seemed to be an untouched burial-pit. This gave rise to much excitement in the antiquities department, which soon simmered down when the pit was found to be unfinished. There, for six weeks, enveloped in clouds of dust, I stuck to it day in and day out beyond finding a large mummified cat in its case with now graces the cairo museum nothing whatsoever rewarded my strenuous and very dusty endeavours this utter failure however instead of disheartening me had the effect of making me keener than ever the more he toiled however the more it became clear to him that he needed expert aid accordingly he consulted sir gaston Maspero, who advised him to have recourse to Mr. Howard Carter. Sir Gaston Maspero's advice proved even more fruitful of good than Lord Carnarvon anticipated. In Mr. Howard Carter, Carnarvon obtained the collaboration not only of a learned expert, an archaeologist gifted with imagination, and, as Lord Carnarvon said, a very fine artist, but that of a true friend. For the next sixteen years the two men worked together with varying fortune, yet ever united not more by their common aim than by their mutual regard and affection. An account of Lord Carnarvon and Mr. Carter's work is to be found in the sumptuous volume entitled Five Years Explorations at Thebes, which they published in 1912 lord carnarvon's description of the first excavations effected with mr howard carter should however find place here after perhaps ten days work at der el bahari in nineteen o seven he writes we came upon what proved to be an untouched tomb i shall never forget the first sight of it there was something extraordinarily modern about it several coffins were in the tomb but the first that arrested our attention was a white, brilliantly painted coffin with a pall loosely thrown over it, and a bouquet of flowers lying just at its foot. There these coffins had remained untouched and forgotten for two thousand five hundred years. The reason for the sepulture being inviolate was soon apparent. There was no funerary furniture, and evidently the owners of the coffins were poor people, and they or their relations had put all the funeral money they were able to spend into the ornamental coffins that contained their bodies one of these coffins i presented to the Newbury museum the results of this season were very poor still one day we thought that we had at last found something which had every appearance of an untouched tomb some four hundred yards from the temple of der el Bahari in the morning i rode out and no sooner did i see carter's face than i knew something unpleasant and unforeseen had occurred alas what looked promising the day before turned out to be merely a walled-up sort of stable where the ancient egyptian foreman had tethered his donkey and kept his accounts but this is a common occurrence for an excavation it is generally the unexpected that happens and the unexpected is nearly always unpleasant. So wrote the future revealer of Tutankhamun's tomb. In 1907 Lord Carnarvon began to form his now celebrated Egyptian collection. My chief aim, he writes, was then, and is now, not merely to buy because a thing is rare, but rather to consider the beauty of an object than its pure historic value. Of course. When the two, beauty and historic interest, are blended in a single object, the interest and delight of possession are more than doubled. The testimony of that eminent authority, Sir Ernest Budge, strikingly confirms Lord Carnarvon's own account of his collection. He only cared, says Sir Ernest, for the best, and nothing but the best would satisfy him, and having obtained the best he persisted in believing that there must be somewhere something better than the best his quest for the beautiful in egyptian design form and colour became the cult of his life in recent years his taste was faultless and his instinct for the true and genuine was unrivalled when compared with a beautiful antica money had no value for him and he was wont to say with sir henry rawlinson It is easier to get money than anticas of all the renunciations forced upon him by bad health the one which cost him most was his inability to take a personal part in the great war although he was past military age his quick intelligence and his intimate knowledge of the french language and french mentality would have made him a valuable liaison officer indeed At one moment he cherished the hope that he might accompany his friend-general Sir John Maxwell to the front, but as at the moment the jolting of a taxi caused him almost unbearable pain, he had to content himself with such work as he could find to do at home. Nevertheless, when his brother Aubrey Herbert, to whom he was specially devoted, was wounded and lost during the retreat from Mons, he was preparing to go pain or no pain to hunt for him in his motor, when the news of Aubrey's escape arrived. At a later stage of the war to attempt such an adventure would have been unthinkable, but at that crisis, immediately after the victory of the Marne, before the war had hardened into a war of trenches, it is just possible that Carnarvon's mingled resource and calmness might have been successful. It was characteristic that, quite a week before the war was declared, being convinced that it was imminent, and believing that food shortage would be the immediate danger, he quietly made preparations for feeding the population on his property. The beauty of his scheme lay in the fact that it did not entail a run on the shops. The potatoes remained in the field, the corn in the ricks, though ready when the pinch came to be doled out, carefully rationed. To the little community of two hundred fifty souls for whom he held himself responsible. As we know, he had misstated that particular peril, and quick to realize his mistakes, he promptly turned his energies in other directions. From the very outbreak of the war, Lord and Lady Carnarvon converted Highclear into an officer's hospital, which was subsequently transferred to thirty eight Bryanston Square and whether in town or country noted for the tender and efficient care of its inmates. After Lady Carnarvon moved her hospital to London, Carnarvon occupied himself, amongst other things, in promoting the conversion of pasture at Highclere into arable land. He was well seconded by his old and attached employees, and was more successful than those who knew the thin chalk soil dared to hope while alone on one of his periodical visits to high clear he was seized with appendicitis lady carnarvon accompanied by surgeons and doctors rushed down and carried him off to the hospital in london where he was promptly operated upon and thus in all probability it was owing to the hospital this husband and wife had founded that his life was eventually saved for nowhere else at that particular time could he have obtained the same unremitting care. It was, however, a close call. The great surgeon, Sir Berkeley Moynihan, who was summoned from Leeds to his bedside, admitted that he himself had only given him another three-quarters of an hour to live. Lord Carnarvon afterwards declared that, though he realized his danger, he was convinced that his sufferings were too acute to allow him to die. True to his inextinguishable sense of humour, even at this crisis, he contrived to make a joke, and was surprised that it did not seem to amuse his medical attendants. It was not much of a joke, but still there was a point to it, and only George, his very devoted servant, smiled, he complained. In the circumstances the doctors might be excused, for it was something of a miracle when their patient pulled through he himself ascribed his recovery to his wife's resource and exertions and to the skill and devotion with which she surrounded him devotion readily given for his nurses adored a patient who even in extremis remained considerate and courteous two years later he had to undergo another vital operation and again he recovered and seemed to have got a firmer grip of life by that time moreover the war had come to an end and his only son who had fought through the mesopotamian campaign was once more safe at home at his side this was an untold relief to carnarvon he was too true an englishman to grudge his boy to the country's service but in many little ways he showed how greatly he felt the strain habitually the most reserved of men when one of the pencil-letters reached him, for which so many hungry hearts yearned in those dark days, he would hurry round to read the precious epistle to a sympathetic audience. And from the moment of the young soldier's embarkation, my boy's little fox-terrier never left his side. Carnarvon's love for his children played a great part in his life. He thoroughly enjoyed their companionship and perhaps even more the evident pleasure they took in his society his love for them enlarged his outlook on life as a whole or rather perhaps swept away the remnant of the constitutional reserve which sometimes set a veil between his true self and the outer world he who as a friend said laughed through life and in especial laughed at himself and his tribulations confessed himself surprised at the extent that fear for their welfare could penetrate his defensive armor. When anxious about his daughter, his gallant little gibes deserted him. I cannot tell you how this has upset me, he wrote. I really can't sleep or eat. I had no idea that anything could worry me so. And it is doubtful whether the great discovery itself would not have lost half its saviour if this daughter, his inseparable companion had not been there to share in the rapture of that amazing revelation even during the war lord carnarvon had made efforts to get to egypt in fact but for a bad attack of pleurisy which at the last moment detained him in england he would have arrived at cairo the very day the turks made their unsuccessful onslaught on the canal naturally as soon as the armistice was signed he took steps to rejoin mr carter who in the intervals of this war-work at ghq in cairo had been able to start preliminary investigations in the valley of the kings journeys were however no easy matter in 1919 with great difficulty berths were procured on a boat which was protected during the crossing by paravanes to avoid the disaster that had recently overtaken a french ship sunk by a floating mine but mines were a less danger than the sanitary condition of the boat she had served as a troop-ship during the war had not yet been disinfected and was packed with arabs to be landed at bizerta happily the journey was short but in that short space there was much sickness and a few deaths the journey so inauspiciously begun did not improve as time went on it was a period of unrest in egypt and it was fortunate that Carnarvon's desire to explore the Fayum, with a view to excavations brought the party back earlier than usual from Luxor to Cairo. Everything had been arranged for the Fayum expedition, and the hour for the departure fixed, when, the evening before the start, Carnarvon received such disquieting reports of the situation in the provinces, that he decided to defer the journey. It was a lucky decision since the next day witnessed the beginning of trouble in the Fayyum, and in the day or two, as he himself wrote, the country was in a state of anarchy. During a lull in the general disorder, he continues, I managed to pack off my family to Port Said, and I will remember how relieved I was to get a telegram to say they had embarked safely. As for himself, he remained on for a time in Cairo, partly in the hope of being able to achieve some more digging but also because he was genuinely interested in the situation as sir william garstin remarks it was carnarvons interest in egyptology that first drew him to egypt he very soon however became much interested in egyptian politics he had a great liking for the egyptians and for those who were trying to restore her as a nation and he showed a sympathetic interest in them to which they readily responded. Few Englishmen have been more liked in Egypt, and the sorrow that was evinced at his death was universal and sincere. Sir William Garstons estimate of Lord Carnarvons position in Egypt is fully confirmed by Sir John Maxwell, also a great authority on Egyptian politics. He was one of the few Englishmen, he says, who realized and appreciated what Egypt did for us during the war, and how difficult it would have been for us had she taken an unfriendly attitude, also that a loyal, contented friend on our eastern communications was infinitely preferable to a sullen, discontented enemy. He was convinced that the former could be accomplished. He was a good and patient listener, and gained the confidence of many of the best class in Egypt. Both in London and at Highclere he entertained the Egyptian delegations. All were appreciative of his hospitality and consideration, and all felt that, in his death, they had lost a real friend of their country. As the days passed, it became evident, however, that any work for that season was out of the question. He was needed in England, and he decided to leave. This was not easy and he was about to charter a sailing-boat when he obtained a passage home. Lord Carnarvon was fated to pay several more visits to Egypt. After his operation in 1919, while scarcely convalescent, he insisted on leaving for Luxor at the usual season, and there recovered his health and strength. A description of Tutankhamun's tomb and its discovery does not fall within the province of this sketch which concerns the man rather than the archaeologist. Carnarvon was never addicted to self-analysis, and though he could give detailed descriptions of the beautiful objects discovered in the tomb, words failed him to express the effect on himself personally of the actual discovery. He could only assure his hearers that it was a very exciting moment. Nor, unlike most events, as the weeks passed, did the excitement wane for the public or for lord carnarvon and naturally perhaps to no one more than to him did these successive revelations bring delight he was as happy as he was modest said a distinguished scholar in this sad world it would seem that triumphs have to be paid for in weariness of soul and body it was a glorious episode but when the tomb was closed for the season lord carnarvon was very tired a mosquito bit him the wound got poisoned and though wife and daughter doctors and nurses fought valiantly for his life it was a losing fight through those long three weeks of pain and misery he remained his old gallant self readers of the bulletins may remember that the gloomiest generally concluded with an assurance that the patient's spirits were good but he himself had no illusions i have heard the call he said to a friend i am preparing on the sixth of april nineteen twenty three he passed away in his will he expressed the wish to be buried on beacon hill it was therefore on the summit of the great down overlooking the home that he had so passionately loved that he was laid to rest only his nearest and dearest and a few workmen and servants many of whom had grown gray in his service stood around the grave but these too he had accounted part of his family and their lament of course he was my master but he was my friend too was the epitaph he would himself have chosen organ music choristers there were none at this burying the beautiful old office commending the body of our dear brother to the ground, in sure and certain hope, had something of the stark grandeur of a funeral at sea. But the whole air was alive with the spring-tide song of the larks. They sang deliriously, in a passion of ecstasy which can never be forgotten by those who heard that song. And so we left him, feeling that the ending was in harmony with the life. Here hear his place where meteors shoot clouds form lightnings are loosened stars come and go let joy break the storm peace let the dew send lofty design must close in like effects loftily lying leave him still loftier than the world suspects living and dying winifred burk the lake high clear September seventeenth, nineteen twenty three. End of section three.